Getting to Prince Edward Island is an overnight voyage when you leave midday. When the sun starts to set, I'm shown my cabin. Of course, it looks like Paul's. All cabins are the same. Weathered wood, a cot with blankets, porthole. I open up the room's trunk, half expecting to see his ropes. But it's empty. I wish my heart and brain could be as empty. Dump the memories of him into the sea. Feed them to my kraken. I wonder if the monster will follow me to Canada. I look out the porthole, up at the black sky, then down at the even blacker sea. I look for a comforting tendril to emerge from the waves, but none come. I lay in bed, almost grateful not to see it. Eventually, I fall asleep. In the morning, a crew member cues me to our imminent arrival. I reconvene with Prissy Taylor on the deck. If you have no other plans or designs, you may as well follow me to Cavendish. It's a simple, friendly town, I've been told. Marks above Passamaquoddy. But what isn't? Completely unfamiliar with Prince Edward Island, and with nowhere else to go, I agree. We disembark and take a train to our final destination. Cavendish is a coastal town with no port. Without the hustle and bustle of shipping yards, a seaside town can be quaint, calm, and clean. Prissy's residency is at the school a couple miles outside of Cavendish. There is an available room at the women's boarding house in town, so I settle there. I've never lived off a main street before. Though I can see the ocean, I'm too far to hear it. Waves exchanged for horse hooves, giggles, and snips of faint conversation. I write to Lampy, informing him of my new residence. That first week, all I could manage to do was wander the roads and window shop. For the first time in my life, I am my own person, untethered to others' reputations. I am new and mysterious to others. Eyes of every resident fall on me as I pass. Some squint, but most smile. The more social town folk inquire about my business in Cavendish. Looking for something new? They politely laugh and claim there is little new about their town. But I had no idea I could live in a place like this. Even the air feels lighter. The owner of the boarding house, Mrs. Strauss, is around the age my mother would be, if she were alive. I suspect Prissy told her my circumstances, what little she knew of them anyway. Letter, dear. At the end of my second week, I receive a letter from Lampy. It simply reads, Come home. I fold the request into tiny little squares and put it in my pocket. Could I bother you for a little assistance, Miss O'Toole? My housemate is on a leave of absence, taking care of her sister. Just had her first baby, such a blessing. And I require another set of hands. I'd like to pull out our raspberry cordial from the basement. An easy task. I descend into the cool room, and I hoist up the wooden box she indicates from the doorway above. I carry it up the steep basement stairs, then slide it onto the kitchen floor. Forgive my inquiry, my dear, but I rarely board women who have such strength. Usually it's academics, visitors, ladies waiting to be wed. I ran a lighthouse. 
Ah, I noticed your coarse hands the first day we met, but I didn't want to intrude. My late husband's family were farmers. The women labored as much as the men. I can spot a working woman from a mile away. She takes me by the hand and invites me to sit at the kitchen table. She opens up a bottle of the raspberry cordial and pours it into two glasses. I take a sip. It tastes like a sweet kiss on a warm spring evening, with a little kick of tartness. At the risk of appearing intrusive, when did your husband pass? Twenty years ago, last November. And you never remarried? Oh, no, dear. May I ask why? You can ask anything of me, Miss O'Toole. My life is an open book to all my boarders. I find that's the best way to discover who's a kindred spirit. Her hospitality is such a salve. Have you noticed the top of this house, the small little square room with all the windows? The widow's walk? My, you are a coastal woman. My husband and I bought this house from a retired sea captain. He built the place. We found the Widow's Walk edition amusing because, as you know, no ships come into Cavendish. But the view of the sea is stunning nonetheless. We thought our children could play up there, pretending to be pirates or seabirds or perhaps even angels. We tried many times to have children, but God did not will it. So when a fever took Paul, I felt grief for being childless all over again. A chill goes down my spine. Paul? A common name, yes, but... Without children, there was no trace of him I could hold on to, save this house. I couldn't lose it. But I also couldn't stay here alone. I opened it as a room and board the following spring. You didn't remarry because of your business? Mm, partially. A man doesn't belong in a women's boarding house, yes. However... I loved Paul. I thought God's purpose for me was to be a wife and mother. When those were taken from me, I understood. God's purpose wasn't mine to choose. It only took a week of hosting boarders for me to see. This was my true purpose. I prefer the company of women. I relish being the keeper of the keys. <laughs> I have made more friends than I ever would have if I'd been sequestered in domesticity. One day, I will travel the world, reconnecting with all those boarders I've kept correspondence with. Some live as close as New Brunswick, others as far as Berlin. My life is grander than I ever could have planned. When I look out from the widow's walk, I can feel the angels of the children I never bore, but I also can see ahead at all the adventures that wait for me when I am ready to launch. Mrs. Strauss. Please call me Francis. Francis, how did you find peace in all of this? God shows his will every day. It's up to us to align ourselves with it. When was that for you? Hmm. There was no one moment. Alignment takes time. Time erodes all, good and bad, Miss O'Toole. Nora, please. Tell me about the lighthouse, Nora. Instinctively, words and tears flow from me in turns. I confess every detail of my life right up to the moment I helped with the raspberry cordial. Even my kraken fantasy. Mrs. Strauss, Francis, has a spirit that beckons my true self. 
If my stories and emotions are a tributary, Francis's understanding is the ocean. I should feel apprehensive about divulging these far-from-Christian facets of my life, but Francis safely supports me. She sits there, nodding with grace and empathy. When my handkerchief is sufficiently soaked in emotion and I've run out of words, Francis offers her hands. I let her hold mine. She gently strokes my knuckles with her thumbs. I realize in this moment my ache does not only come from my father and Paul. I've been motherless for more than half my life. I am honored to meet you at this moment in your life, Nora. Every day, Francis asks for a little help here and there around the house. When the housemaid returns, she begins to show me how the business runs. Now, a boarder is almost always announced via letter, well before their arrival. Inquiries of vacancy, rate of board, you know. Now and again we'll have an unexpected guest, but this isn't the type of town to have untoward travelers, so you can trust them. I give her a look of surprise. I trusted you, didn't I? For the first time in my life, things feel intuitive. For every amount of effort I put out, there's a kind affirmation waiting for me in return. Working with Francis, I feel useful and loved. I happily schedule my time around her business's needs. I grow to know the people of Cavendish better. They're a kind, curious, educated people. With no local tavern, they gather in the squares, community halls, and church socials. The day-to-day affairs feel blessedly easy and enjoyable. You are a prodigy of organizational brilliance, my dear Nora. Thank you so much for your generous assistance. It is deeply appreciated. However, at night, I am tempted to spiral in grief over what I'll never have. Half asleep, I habitually reach for the future I prayed for when Paul was missing. But now, it feels poisonous. I can't ruminate in those dreams for more than a moment. Paul may have come back alive, but he wants nothing to do with the life he promised me. The grief is tangled with anger and shame. So I weep at night and gather hope during the day. This morning marks six weeks of this new life. After I help check her bookkeeping, Frances makes me tea. Then she offers me a scone and something life-changing. There's no two ways about it, Nora. I see you as even more than a kindred spirit. You came into my life at the perfect time. It's been, what, six weeks now? Feels like so much longer. It does. How would you feel about running this house if I were to take a sabbatical? You'd be well compensated, of course. We'd work together in the fall and winter, and when spring comes, you'll be desperate for my European departure. I know a thing or two about being a woman with endless talent and not enough of an outlet. She notices I'm holding my breath. You're not simply capable, Nora. You're a force to be reckoned with. Think on it, my dear. I'm going to set the rest of these scones in the parlor. Alone, I try to sort my thoughts between fear and excitement. Can I simply start a radically new life? Is Passamaquoddy truly gone forever? 
Francis returns with the empty tray in hand. She gives me a wink and a smile. No rush, Miss Nora. We can talk about it in a few weeks' time. No, Francis. I know. Yes. You're right. I'd love to. We hug and laugh, join together in reclaiming our destinies. On a surge of riding high on fate's waves, I dash off to my room and write a letter to Lampy. I haven't replied to his note, which I received almost a month ago now. But no one else has written either. My note is brief, declaring my decision to stay in Cavendish and start a new life on Prince Edward Island. I am choosing my fate. I address and seal the envelope, but discover I'm out of postage stamps. It's a beautiful late August morning, so I decide to walk the letter to our post office. It's a couple miles down the road near the train station. The ocean is bright and shining, the sun glistening on the water like crystals. Now that I've become a familiar face, I receive a few good mornings and nods as I pass my neighbors and move further into town. After dropping off my letter, I pick up some fresh produce at the grocer's. I spy some gorgeous bouquets of lilacs as I leave the store, but I haven't any more arm space to take them back to the boarding house. The uphill climb feels slightly less joyful, with arms full of groceries and the late morning sun beating down. I can feel the sweat ripple down my back. I'm so distracted I don't even notice the figure on the porch until I'm almost to the boarding house. He is broad-shouldered, squinting at me, standing tall. He holds the same bouquet I admired at the general store. He is serious, focused, humble. I can feel his heart several yards away. I clutch the groceries close to me, like a shield. He steps to the side, allowing me to come onto the porch and set down the produce. Even when I look away, I can feel his eyes fixed on me. I look up at him, that tall man who used to feel like a mythical creature, a god, a savior. But I understand he's none of those things now. He never was. He's only Paul. He offers me the bouquet. For the first time in my life, I feel as if I have a choice. I'm not scared. I know what I need to do.